Thank you all so very much for coming back for another episode of Black Diplomats. I'm Terrell Jermaine Starr for folks who are new to the show. This week, we're revamping the format so that you'll get a lot more of me and shorter but more engaging interviews with some cool guests. This new style should make it easier for you to follow along with the conversations. Today, I'm going to break down why Vladimir Putin is menacing Ukraine with his military and then jump into a great conversation I had with Olga Tokariuk, a dope Ukrainian journalist based in Kiev. And no, Olga's not an elite, nor does she have a bomb shelter. You'll have to be tuned into Ukraine Twitter to get the humor. From there, I'll get into the latest news on Russian freedom fighter Alexei Navalny. So, let's jump right into Russia's military buildup at Ukraine's eastern border and Putin's eventual pullback of troops. Why is he doing this, you all may ask? Well, it's pretty simple. Putin is a bully who doesn't play nice with others because he's completely incapable of respecting his neighbor's autonomy. He doesn't respect that Ukraine wants to join the European Union and NATO, that their country has adopted a Western orientation. He doesn't respect the fact that Ukrainians choose leadership that basically doesn't kiss his ass. The man has devoted years to manipulating the political process in Ukraine and getting people like Viktor Yanukovych, the former president of Ukraine, who was forced out of office after activists went to the streets in 2013 and demanded that he resign. When the people got what they wanted, Putin was furious. So what does he do? He invades Ukraine in 2014 because his whole thing is, I'm going to force you to respect me. And the Ukrainians were like, fuck off. And so Russia in return said, oh, you want me to fuck off? I'm going to send in my troops and we're basically going to colonize you again. So that's just a little bit of context, but back into this situation at the border, Putin did this as a way of threatening Ukraine. For those who don't know, Russia has one of the most elite militaries in the world. And they have more resources than most militaries on Earth. And compared to Ukraine's military, even though it has improved and reformed over the years, it's no match. And so, again, when Putin doesn't get what he wants, he bullies his neighbors. And he also does it with Georgia, another country that's across the Black Sea that refuses to kiss his butt. But the um, situation has really caused a lot of concerns in the West 
a lot of military leadership in Brussels and in Washington were all paying close attention because they weren't sure whether or not Putin was serious, whether he was truly thinking about a second invasion, or as we learned, he just wanted to threaten people and to show off his military strength simply because he could. So what's really interesting with all of this is that there are thousands of people who went to the streets around Russia in protest of Alexei Navalny's imprisonment, which I'll get into later in the show. And as he was delivering the speech, people poured into the streets, not only supporting Navalny, but expressing their anger and their frustration with the state of Russian affairs. One of the misperceptions about Russia is that everyone in the country supports him and that everyone wants this Soviet-style form of government and has this nostalgia of USSR yesteryear. I think that's a pretty inaccurate analysis. Russian culture and Russian politics and the society, um, it's all very complex. And because Putin has waged such an authoritarian rule over the country, we really don't know how Russians would respond if they truly had the option of choosing different leaders. We really don't know. So all of this is happening as this Russian uh, military buildup is taking place. And of course, when Putin talks about this red line that the West better not cross because we will protect ourselves against threats internally and externally, which basically means that NATO and the European Union, the closer you get to our borders, the more I'm going to greet you with our troops. Ukraine is at a unique crossroads where they are going through their own shifts of democracy and trying to figure out what works for them. And what's really interesting about this moment, about this year, is that we are approaching the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Soviet Union. Yes, this year will mark 30 years since the Soviet Union fell, 1991. Yeah, most definitely. So, the thing that you all need to know is that Ukrainians are used to this. Ukrainians are used to Putin every few months or so making these threats of military force. They are used to Putin constantly threatening Ukraine's leadership that if they advance in their desire to join NATO, it will produce long-term consequences, which is basically a threat of military invasion. 
which we know that he has no problem doing. So think about this. I, I think we really need to ask ourselves, why does Putin use the military instead of diplomacy? It's a question that a lot of imperial countries ought to be asked, including America. A lot of people don't want to make that comparison and they would bristle at me making that comparison. But America is an imperial country and so is Russia. And they both have a problem with bullying people who they don't like with their hardware. But we're talking about Putin right now, right? Why is he doing it? And the reason is pretty simple. He doesn't know anything else. And the Ukrainian people are not buying what he's selling. He is selling this Ruski Mir. He is selling this Russia world that if you join our union, if you join my sphere of influence, this will bring you vitality. This will political vitality. It will bring you economic strength, etc. But there are many Ukrainians who are looking at 2014 where much of the eastern part of their country has Russian tanks. And their response is, this is how you treat us if you claim that we're going to be treated better in your sphere of influence. If we disagree with you, you kill our people. You send troops to our soil, little green men. So in response, Ukraine was like, nah, I'm good. Usually what a good politician would do is create a better pitch. They would create a better idea, a better anything so that the people that he or she wants to pull on their side will look at them favorably. But that would require you to respect people's autonomy, which Putin never has. He doesn't respect autonomy, which is why he manipulates elections across the world, particularly in Europe and the United States. If I can't use my words, I'll use my disinformation. That's basically what it is, y'all. And through it all, though, Ukrainians are used to this. I travel to the country a minimum of three months out of the year, travel throughout the country. And if you did not know that there was an ongoing war in eastern Ukraine, you wouldn't know it by having lunch at a cafe in downtown Kiev. Which brings me to the very funny tweets that we saw on the Twitter timeline this week where someone who I will not name because it's not important discussed the fears of Ukrainian elites and how they are planning for the very worst 
And you saw a lot of folks who lived in Ukraine saying, take a chill pill, bro. <laughs> Yo, relax, man. Which is pretty accurate because even though this recent buildup was unusually large, it's not unusual behavior. So people definitely were on alert. I don't want to minimize or downplay how serious this buildup at the border was. But there was no particular panic that uh, some people on Twitter were articulating. Right. But again, Putin is doing this because he's a bully. And he doesn't know how to behave otherwise. And he's going to continue to do so as he gets comfortable in his third decade in power. Yes, the man has really been in power for that long. So, at the end of the day, man, um, I really would not put too much credence in this notion that Ukrainians are fearing the worst and that they're going to retreat in their bunkers. Not happening. But yeah. Mr. Putin is a bully. We all know it. And it's just another day in Ukraine, basically. That's my take on that. But I wanted to get a sense of how people in Kiev are feeling right now. So I reached out to Olga, who's a great independent journalist and freelance correspondent for the Spanish news agency EFE. She's done a lot of great investigative work in the disinformation sphere. She co-authored an investigative documentary about a controversial trial involving a Ukrainian soldier in Italy. And she's the author of a research paper on the role of Kremlin disinformation that influenced that trial. She's worked in TV and print in Ukraine and abroad. We get a lot into how Ukrainians are feeling about their president, Volodymyr Zelensky, how they're fighting disinformation, and how the 2014 Russian invasion has changed the political trajectory and culture of the country. Here's our conversation. Thank you for coming on, Olga. I have always wanted to meet you. You are the documentarian and reporter extraordinaire. So yeah, welcome to Black Diplomats. How you doing? <laughs> Thank you. I'm very happy to be with you today. Well, I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm in New York. Um, I'm not among the elites, but... <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, there's a lot to talk about with Ukraine right now. The news that we have in America is that there is a major buildup of Russian troops at the border. And it, the numbers are varying, but you have the numbers of uh, 100,000, perhaps more, a little bit less. And for those who aren't familiar with the politics of Ukraine and Russia, uh, you know, this tension has been going on since Russia invaded um, Ukraine. And so this is another escalation by Russian President Vladimir Putin. But the main thing is, since you're based in Kiev, just tell us what the atmosphere is amid this news. Yeah, well, I can tell that there is absolutely no panic. Although, yeah, I have to say, I'm not daily communicating with the country's elite, so I might not be aware <laughs> if there is some panic among, among the elite. But in the circles I communicate with, I'm in touch with, I mean, okay, journalists, activists, uh, parents of my kids from her kindergarten, there is no panic. So people are just uh, living normal lives, of course, corrected uh, because we are in a lockdown. So there are some limitations related to that. For example, like public transport is closed. So maybe you don't hear what people talk about in marshrutkas or on the metro. Maybe that's why I'm not like also like feeling <laughs> any, any panic. Sure, Ukrainians are used to live under constant threat of Russia since 2014 when it became its uh, aggression um so yeah we just in case me and my husband we just checked uh, the nearest bomb shelters just in case and we keep our documents ready and our most nice necessary belongings like if we have to evacuate but fortunately for now it seems there is no like imminent threat at least here in Kiev. I don't know about you, but anytime I go to Kiev, it feels like a vibrant cosmopolitan city and no one talks about the war. I do want to ask you about Putin's speech and how that was received. There was a lot of menacing in Putin's remarks and a lot of threatening, a lot of bullying, which is usually Putin's attitude. So... How did people receive that speech uh, in, in, in Ukraine? Just one word, boring. <laughs> yeah, very boring because he keeps repeating the same things over and over again. And if it wasn't for the Russian military buildup, probably not many people in Ukraine would have followed his speech. He was all the time referring to some concepts of the past he even made some like mistakes he said warsaw pact pact instead of the organization of collective security he he mentioned uh, ukraine's ex-president yanukovych twice the president who fled to russia in 2014 and who has been basically forgotten in ukraine like nobody remembers him putin was referring to some concepts that uh, feel like completely of another age here in Ukraine. So yes, he was menacing like he always does. He was threatening, he was belligerent, he was like repeating all these usual Russian cliches. But 
people in Ukraine are really not afraid of that. They are not afraid of his rhetoric. Of course, like everybody here is prepared that he might order an attack and another attack, like a renewed escalation on Ukraine again. But that escalation, that the attack on Ukraine, it's been going on anyway. It's been going on for seven years. So Ukrainians, they are aware of the Russian threat. They are ready to fight back. They are ready to mobilize if there is a, a threat of a more serious escalation. But they are not afraid. How do you think Zelensky is responding to all of this? Because initially he was criticized as being that comedian guy and there were a lot of mixed reviews of him. But given all of this, how do you feel he has stood up to the test or not? Zelensky, it's actually quite remarkable how he was the, um, the transformation he was undergoing in these two years. Because on April 21st, um, he marked two years since he was uh, voted, since he once was elected as president. So in these two years, he has undergone a remarkable transformation from this uh, a person, a, a, a candidate, a politician, with very vague ideas, who didn't make like any clear electoral promises. He was very vague until the last moment. And when he was during his first year in office, he was very pacifist. He was very willing to compromise. He was even a year ago, he in his interviews, he was saying that it is possible to end the war within a year. But what we have seen in the recent six months or maybe eight months, he understood that uh, his initiatives, like his uh, offers of compromise and his steps that he was making towards Russia, like opening up, announcing a ceasefire, agreeing to an exchange of prisoners on Russian terms, that these steps he was taking, uh, they were not followed by any steps by Putin. Putin has never played nice with anybody and he's always bullied people. This current situation that we see at the border right now eerily reminds me of 2008 when Russia invaded Georgia. And I asked you about Zelensky and how he's handling it because Shaqashvili, when he was president in Georgia, he was criticized for being too emotional and taking Russia's bait. And it does not appear that Zelensky is playing Putin's tricks and playing into his trap. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely, yes, I agree. Zelensky has shown um, quite a, a remarkable restraint so far. I think it is also uh, noteworthy that in his latest speech, in his address to Ukrainians, he um, dedicated some time to address Putin directly. He spoke in Russian while the rest of his speech was in Ukrainian. But for two minutes in the end of his uh, address, he was uh, speaking directly to Putin in Russian. And what he said, he basically offered him to meet in Donbass. So again, showing Ukraine's willingness to... Uh, have talks to find a diplomatic solution. Of course, there was no response from Putin. 
as there were no response from the Kremlin to uh, Zelensky's uh, offers uh, to have a call to discuss um, that were going, these attempts were there since the, the end of March, and there was no response from the Kremlin. So again, no answer to that uh, Zelensky proposal to meet in Donbass. But at least it shows uh, the world that Ukraine is willing to uh, negotiate, that Ukraine is open to dialogue, that uh, all Russian claims that Ukraine is acting aggressively or that Ukraine is provoking are not true. I want to talk more about you now because you are one of the... Uh, the, the the best disinformation experts I know when we're talking about uh, Russia and propaganda, particularly how it's targeting Ukraine. And you recently published a, a research paper. Uh, it's titled The Battle of Narratives, Criminal Propaganda and Disinformation in the Vitali Markiv Case in Italy. So take our listeners through how you got involved in that project because it's taking you to Italy and it has um, really opened up a greater understanding of the Kremlin's uh, propaganda machine. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting because Italy has always been like, um, it has a special place in my heart because I studied there, uh, I graduated, I got my master's from the Bologna University. I lived in Italy for three years and I just returned to Ukraine several months uh, before Maidan started. And then I began like covering Maidan for the Italian media and I established this like relation with with Italy also on a professional level um, and um, for the last three years I was following this case which is a very remarkable it is very underreported in the uh, English language media well there was there were some articles in the New York Times in the Washington Post but Apart from that, like almost nothing was published in English. So this is about this Ukrainian soldier named Vitali Markiv, who was arrested and convicted by the first instance court in Italy uh, for murder of the Italian photo reporter Andrea Rocchelli. He was given 24 years in prison, but it turned out that the evidence against him was based partly on Russian propaganda sources. So in court, the prosecution quoted Russian propaganda resources such as uh, RT and Russian Spring as evidence. <laughs> wow. And, wow. <laughs> yeah. And in, in the, the, the whole narrative about that case in the Italian media, it was also very heavily influenced by uh, uh, Kremlin disinformation narratives about Ukraine. For example, like the cliches, the disinformation cliches that Ukraine is full of Nazis and that there is a civil war in Ukraine that Russia has nothing to do with uh, what was happening in Donbass. Um, so uh, the, the whole bunch of this like disinformation narratives emerged in this case that I think had an inf had an impact on this uh, decision, the court decision to convict him because the the first instance court uh, it was a jury court, so there were people's judges in it who 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 decided who basically like gave him this twenty four year sentence and the trial was in the native in the hometown of the Italian photo reporter. So in a way there was this emotional involvement, I think, and also the media pressure. And the Italian media organizations were also on the side of the prosecution and this and this trial. So it, there was a very heavy media media pressure. And the narrative about the, the case and about Ukraine, Ukraine's war in general, 
uh, was heavily influenced by this pro-Kremlin disinformation. Well, in the end, uh, everything went well for this Ukrainian soldier. In the appeals court, he was acquitted, so he is now free. He returned to Ukraine. Uh, well, but he spent more than three years in, in prison and nobody will like return these years of life for him. But for me, this case was really remarkable as an example how dangerous uh, propaganda and disinformation is that it not only penetrates political uh, systems, it doesn't only um, impact and taint uh, debate in the society, but as we've seen in this case, it can also penetrate courtrooms and have an impact on the outcomes of the trials. And that, I think, is really worrying, especially because that was happening in a democratic country, uh, the member of the European Union in Italy. When I'm listening to you, it reminds me of my own country, America, because our country is targeted with uh, criminal propaganda and many of us fall for it right and it deals with this larger conversation about media literacy as well so i've always looked at it in multiple ways which deals with my previous question about the people in eastern ukraine that are under russian uh control and folks in crimea they too have been bombarded with decades of disinformation, right? It didn't just start with the war or the lead up to the war. It started up to that. And that's something that I explained to the students. And what we really have to acknowledge is that if people bombarded us with disinformation for decades and decades and decades, we too, to some degree, would be victims of that. And there's not something in our DNA that makes us immune to it exactly. And so there is a certain degree of care that you have to uh, apply to these people in these regions. But, 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 but to this question about disinformation, uh, I'm a, you know, we're both journalists, right? And our jobs are to disseminate information is to gather facts. And so we're trained to know what's real, what's not. When we read our social media timelines, we know how to verify sources, but the average human being, whether it's here in New York City or in Kiev, where you are, they don't have that knowledge because they're not in this ecosystem where we can say, oh, this is bullshit or this is not real because propaganda taps into our feelings and our emotions, right? It taps into what we want to believe, even if it's not true. Yes, definitely. Well, I think it's a really big problem. That's a very contemporary modern problem that we still have to realize and address. Because if we don't address it, if uh, we uh, let propaganda and disinformation taint our public debate and our media for years, as was the case with, uh, for example, how the Ukrainian war, how the conflict with Russia was depicted in many media in the West, especially in like several European countries that are more susceptible to Russian influence than others, we see then that it can have like really very uh, bad and very um, threatening for the democracy uh, consequences. And this, uh, the, this case of Vitaly Marki of this Ukrainian soldier is just a case in point. I think how we should address it, how should we react? I definitely believe that media literacy needs to become a part of the school, school curriculum. The 
kids uh, starting from the kindergarten, they have to be told uh, how to work, how to verify information, uh, how to work with sources, like how, how to check uh, whether like this is real or not. And especially with the advance of the AI and the new technology as well with the deep fakes. So uh, I think that's becoming like relevant by the day and we should be uh, really keeping up with uh, with these challenges. One of the challenges with that in America is how do you regulate speech? That's the main problem in America. And that's a trickier uh, issue, I think, um, in the sense that if you have Newsmax, for example, or name any other entity that spreads lies, right? They just flat out spreads lies. There is no way that our government can prevent it. And then also in our school systems, our school systems are, there's so many of them. Um, I could just say thousands, for example, across this country. And so the state, the government can't do a top-down approach and say, this is how all of these schools are going to do this. Not that I know of. And it makes it harder because people are going to say, you're cutting into my speech, which gets to the larger point of as a citizen, the responsibility is on me to decide what I'm going to listen to and what I'm going to believe. How is this conversation being had in Ukraine? Yeah, well, I think Ukraine has been on the front line of the disinformation and propaganda uh, by the Kremlin since at least 2014, but even before that, of course, but especially it came into the spotlight in 2014. And I think it's not a coincidence that some of the most popular or the pioneers of the fact-checking initiatives were born in Ukraine, such as Stop Fake, uh, an international NGO now that like, yeah, it was born in Ukraine, but now it's really international. And many others were founded based on this example of Stop Fake. Uh, so uh, I think, um, but still, like even though Ukraine um, really has this first-hand knowledge of how to spot and how to uh, how to spot disinformation, how to counter propaganda, uh, and Ukraine has a lot of experience to share with other countries, and it's doing that. Like I know that there are a lot of like trainings and a lot of exchange between Ukrainian experts in the field of countering disinformation, propaganda, and other from and others from from different countries. Still, it's a long way to go because as technologies develop and new tools emerge, like uh, something new, the, the, there is a new challenge every day. So. Um, that's a conversation I think we should be having on a global level with uh, definitely with the participation of the major tech players, the tech play, uh, the tech platforms, because uh, it's also their responsibility like to, to regulate that. And I think uh, they should be regulated more because, well, they've been taking some steps recently, but mostly under external pressure, not uh, of their own initiative. But I think this is not enough. Yeah, I'm, I'm delving more into this topic of disinformation and how to combat it. Like recently, yeah, before I was like only like mostly doing like journalism, foreign news, international relations. But 
<laughs> during like my work on this case of Vitali Markiva, I really got interested into this uh, issue of disinformation and how it can impact political process, uh, societies, and even the, the trials. So I'm trying to figure that out myself, but I think it is important to raise awareness, to talk about that on, on different levels. Ukraine blocked contact year, years ago. And we know that you can access this platform through VPNs, but the government took a, a step in blocking this platform now, that's something that we can't do in America. We just can't go to Facebook and say, we're going to block your, <laughs> you know, your access to people. It was interesting. Now, I personally was okay with that decision. And I, I wrote about that when it, I wrote about that move when the Ukrainians did it. Um, it's just interesting to see how different democracies handle disinformation. So they're saying flat out, we're just going to block these particular uh, platforms and move forward um, because I know if you were to say, we are going to cut this particular uh, platform, First Amendment issues will be raised again because again, it comes around speech. It comes around to freedom of speech. And I think the next step is what if you're, if the speech that you're saying freely is a lie and it causes harm and damage. I wanna end by asking you about, you know, as a Ukrainian, you know, as a young Ukrainian woman who is, who has devoted your life to, um, you know, the better man of your country through media, what, how optimistic are you that Ukraine will move into its next phase of development? Because we're going into the 30th anniversary of the fall of the USSR this year right and so i think there are so many symbolisms about that particularly as we think about ukraine yeah well definitely yeah this year ukraine will celebrate 30 years of its independence and yeah it's been a long way but still uh, a long way ahead uh, i think ukraine can be really proud uh, that uh, yeah well it has its problems and the uh, uh, there are still a lot of things to be done, a lot of reforms to be implemented, and the fight against corruption is not over. But I think Ukraine can be proud that it's a democracy, uh, which is not that common among the states of the former Soviet Union. Well, apart from Ukraine and Georgia, basically uh, only Baltic countries are democracies, and they are parts of the EU and NATO. So not that many countries of the former Soviet Union are democracies, and but Ukraine is. That's, I think, the major achievement and the thing I personally, personally cherish and value uh, the most. Um, Ukraine has a very diverse civil society, very strong civil society. Uh, the government is accountable to people and it's with every passing year, with every government, it's becoming more and more accountable. It reacts uh, to uh, people's needs and uh, people's demands. Uh, Ukrainians, um, there is a freedom of speech in Ukraine. For me as a journalist, it's very important. Of course, well, uh, there are some problems and there are sometimes attacks on journalists. 
There are definitely uh, problems with the attacks on members of the civil society. And there are, of course, uh, big problems with the um, independent judiciary. And you probably know that there were protests in Ukraine in recent weeks and months demanding judiciary reform, which I think is number one priority now for Ukraine. Uh, but it's been changing. Uh, I see a lot of changes in Ukraine. Um, these changes maybe are not that fast as people would want, but it's a vibrant country. It's a very dynamic country. It's a country that is looking into the future, not into the past. So I really believe in uh, Ukraine's success and I'll do my best to help it with that. So, no one is panicking. The elites can rest easy. Putin has had his temper tantrum and pulled his toys away from the Ukrainian border. And yeah, to a Soviet-style authoritarian, tanks are, in fact, toys. Now, he can spend his free time abusing Alexei Navalny, who is serving two and a half years in prison on politically motivated charges and is now battling serious health issues. I couldn't find a better person to help update us on the particulars of what's going on with Navalny and his team than Eilish Hart, news editor at Medusa and Ukraine editor at Bear Market Brief. Eilish, so welcome to the show. There's a lot that's been happening with Navalny over the past 48 hours. He was on a hunger strike until his doctors urged him to call it off, which he did. He announced it on his Instagram account. So there's a lot going on that we don't know about. So just update us on the latest since you've been following this since uh, since forever. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, like you said, this morning, Alexei Navalny called off his hunger strike after 24 days. Um, and he did this for two reasons. So the first reason was uh, at the insistence of his doctors. So yesterday they published a letter urging him to call off his hunger strike because they had received the results of medical examinations that he had undergone earlier this week. Um, these medical exams were conducted by civilian doctors at, you know, just a regular state hospital in the Vladimir region. So this isn't, you know, information coming from prison doctors. Um, and his private, you know, personal physicians looked at these examinations and these test results and they said, you know, this is as close as you're probably going to get to an independent medical exam. Um, and we believe the correct tests have been conducted to have a, you know, a course of treatment for you and you should end your hunger strike now. Um, so this morning, uh, like you mentioned, he, you know, made the announcement that he was calling off his hunger strike. Um, he said he did this on the advice of his doctors and also because a number of people had announced hunger strikes in solidarity with him. Uh, so he didn't want to be responsible for anyone's, you know, personal suffering. Um, or And then later uh, in the day today, his doctors released a second letter. It was published by Novaya Gazeta. Um, and they were saying, uh, and what they said in the letter was, you know, they're glad he's called of his hunger strike. That said, they still believe 
there's, you know, a risk to his life given his symptoms and the way his condition has deteriorated. And so they're calling for him to be transferred to a civilian hospital in Moscow for treatment. And they are also saying that they'd like to see kind of like a panel of specialists put together to treat him um, because they are very, very worried about the state of his health. And they are, you know, saying he's at high risk for very serious complications, kidney failure, you know, another coma, things along those lines. So it's good that he's called off his hunger strike, but, you know, his health had deteriorated pretty significantly. He's lost, you know, more than 30 pounds in prison. Um, and even before that, the state of his health wasn't good. Prison doctors diagnosed him with herniated discs. He's talked about pain in his back, numbness and pain spreading to his arms and legs. Um, and coming off a hunger strike isn't easy. So I don't think we're going to see his health, you know, get better quickly. Navalny was sentenced to prison earlier this year uh, during a controversial trial that pretty much most Western governments deemed as rigged, right, and, and unfair. And a lot of people were also surprised that Navalny was jailed because people assumed that if he was in jail, that it would actually make Navalny a more sympathetic figure to the public, um, you know, more than before. And that it would be easier if he was just free and being some basically a, a very outspoken critic who really could not threaten Putin. And so what's the pulse of how Navalny's imprisonment has influenced the opposition movement as well as everyday Russians? Sure. Um, I think... Okay, I might argue with you about people being surprised that Navalny ended up in jail. I think when um, when he you know announced or, or said that he was planning to return to Russia after spending you know five months in Germany recovering from you know a poisoning attack, um, the Russian government made it really clear that they didn't want him to come back. They pressed new charges on him. They you know dug up old parole sentences and said and accused him of various violations, which is why he ended up in prison. Um, so I think a lot of people, you know, fully expected that he would wind up in jail, although I understand what you're saying in terms of the fact that it runs the risk of making him seem more sympathetic. Um, I think this has really raised his profile internationally, which is something we can talk about. Um, Inside of Russia, this has done a couple things. So I, it has raised his profile inside of Russia. Um, as you, you probably know, prior to Navalny's poisoning, Russian state media pretty much had a ban, an unspoken ban on mentioning him. The Kremlin spokespeople didn't say his name. Um, they used various pseudonyms to refer to him. Now there's basically been, you know, for several months, a television blitz um, against him. So a lot more people know who Navalny is. They don't necessarily have a good impression of him. Um, what's kind of interesting to look at is, you know, opinion polling. So from uh, independent polls, the independent pollster, the Levada Center conducted surveys back in February um, around the time that Navalny had his trial and uh, a lot of people were aware of what was happening. They knew about the trial, but his approval ratings were still quite low. Um, and that's approval for his activities, right? Like the anti-corruption work he does, things like that. Um, so there was, you know, pretty high disapproval for what Navalny was up to, even though people, you know, now, now more people know who he is. 
Um, on the other hand, kind of attitudes towards Navalny as opposed to approval, just how people feel about him in general was pretty neutral. Um, you know, around like the 50% mark, you've got people saying like, eh, we don't know how we feel about him. Um, more recent polls in March showed very high awareness about his case. Um, and the case, what's interesting to me, as opposed to looking at Navalny as a political figure is the, what I said, what you see in the statistics is that, you know, the vast majority of people see the case as unfair. Um, and I think the number was around 60% of people thought that he should be released as soon as possible. Um, so I like, it's clear that, you know, his case and what's happening with him has made him a more sympathetic figure uh, in that sense, but whether or not that would translate into kind of support for him as a political figure, I think maybe a different question. Thousands of people took to the streets this week in protest of his treatment. And the reports that I'm reading is that people were not necessarily coming out to support him more so it was about how he was treated and overall the uh, corruption of the state. And that to me shows that people that Russians contrary to what a lot of people think about Russians, right? Um, actually care about freedoms and actually care about democracy, but that's a stereotype um, that's long been played out in the West. So can you explain to us how, what this means as far as people protesting in the streets, because we know there are very strict anti-protest laws in Russia, right? And, and, and just talk to us about, like, uh, about the ways in which Russians protest uh, the state, given how difficult it is. Yeah, I think um, I think you've you've gotten you've gotten right to the point right there where uh, if the you know support that exists for Navalny is for Navalny as an anti-corruption figure, um, I think that's really where he has the most impact um, is his anti-corruption work, and that's what really you know motivates people to take to the streets. Not, I mean, this week, uh, like you said, there were there were protests on Wednesday. Um, there aren't great estimates necessarily for the number of people that were on the streets, but there were protests in dozens of cities across Russia. Um, and I mean, earlier this year in, in January and in, in early February when Navalny first returned and um, was jailed, the protests that happened then were extremely large. I mean, you saw an estimated 110,000 people in you know protesting in dozens of cities. Um, so I think that, like you said, that does speak to the fact that people in Russia care about you know, they care about combating corruption and they care about freedom and they care about democracy. I think in terms of, you know, stereotypes about Russians not caring um, that are prevalent, I'm assuming, like you're saying, in, in uh, North American media or English language media and, and things like that, like that's what you're referring to, right? Like that's where those ideas prevail. You're nodding. Okay. Um, so I think in, um, yeah, I think that in part comes from a tendency that people have to equate, you know, the Russian population and Russian people with the with the Russian state and the messaging that comes from the Russian state. Um, I think, especially if you only followed, you know, certain news in English about Russia, it's all going to be, you know, Putin, Putin, Putin. Um, and he's been very clear about the fact that, uh, you know, he thinks liberalism is obsolete and democracy is dead. And if you're, you know, kind of extrapolating the Kremlin line onto the Russian population, then of course you're gonna get this impression that, um, you know, freedom and democracy isn't something that people care about. And like you said, the, 
the attendance at these protests and the way that people are being very vocal um, over a case like Navalny speaks to the fact that those stereotypes aren't necessarily true. Right. So I think it's important for us to always emphasize that fact, because I think that this misunderstanding of the Russian people, uh, particularly when you juxtapose who they are with the state, um, it, 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 it creates misunderstandings and it really doesn't help us understand the situation. Right. And so I've always run into that issue when I talk about Russia. I focus more on Ukraine, but I also do um, cringe when I hear people, um, you know, in the media, in media, when they talk about Russia, always emphasize Putin. I sometimes when I talk about Russia, I, if I'm in a classroom now, obviously this is pre-COVID, I write Russia on a um, on, on the board and I say, tell me what you know about this country because since 2016, we've been experiencing Russiagate, right? We've been experiencing a barrage of media uh, stories talking about Russian interference. So I said, you can't talk about Putin. You can't say code. You can't say Siberia. You can't say Moscow. And I just give them about 10 words that they can't use. You know, people can't come up with anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's difficult um, at times, especially if you're only following, you know, certain certain media or media that only comes out in English. I mean, it's also a challenge for editors, right? Like when people hear about Russia, they love to hear a story about Putin. They love to hear a story about a bear in Siberia. It's what they're expecting. Um, but challenging some of that isn't, you know, always the easiest pitch. Um, and I think that's why it's really important to follow independent, you know, reporters on the ground in Russia who are covering things at a much more granular level. Um, that said, I mean, I think in terms of if you want to dig more into what Russian people care about, um, I think, you know, the, the messaging, not sorry, that's the wrong word, but I think, you know, what we're seeing right now is a, a real, um, real economic concerns. Like people are very concerned about falling standards of living. People are very concerned about, you know, the prices of, you know, everyday products, like buying groceries, feeding their families. And of course this is happening kind of around the world amid COVID. Um, but I think, you know, it, it paints a very different picture of Russia if you look at it from a social level, as opposed to what's happening, you know, in terms of like the high politics and trying to decipher what the Kremlin's up to. For those of us who don't understand Russian, where can we go to get news about what's happening if we don't just want to hear about Putin all the time? Of course, we want to be informed, but what are some sources that you would recommend for us? Yeah, for sure. Um, so obviously, uh, Medusa in English can be your uh, one-stop shop for all things Russia. Um, we're, we're covering, you know, the, we, we curate our news for an international audience. So we, we do think about, you know, what people would be interested in, but we're also translating long form report, reporting from people who are on the ground, um, which gives you, like I said before, kind of a more granular view of what's going on. Uh, Novaya Gazeta has an ex excellent, excellent, excellent English language newsletter um, where they summarize some of their reporting. And, you know, they're um, one of probably the most well-established independent or kind of opposition-leaning newspapers. So they do a lot of really interesting journalism. Um, 
at the same time, you know, there's a lot of interesting investigative outlets and some of their longer investigations come out in English at times. So iStories Media, for example, whose editor was just, you know, subjected to the FSB raiding his apartment. A lot of his reporting has been translated by um, their investigative partners with the OCCRP. So those are some places uh, to start for sure. Um, and of course, there's the Moscow Times. Uh, they do great reporting on Russia in English. It's a little Moscow centric, but <laughs> it'll get you started. Right on. I really appreciate you coming on to talk to us. I mean, I always I read your newsletter uh, for sure. Like anytime it comes out, um, it's really great. And I recommend people follow Eilish on Twitter. And what's your handle? At Eilish Hart. <laughs> H-A-R-T. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Good. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I hope y'all like this new format. I certainly do. But I want to hear what y'all think. Let me know your thoughts on social media, namely Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode, please go to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and leave me a five-star review. Then go on to our Patreon and support me there. I really want to expand my show offerings to include feature-length audio stories and explainers. But those things cost a lot of money and require a lot of time and effort. So please, give me a few coins so we can make it happen. We'll jump into more Eastern European politics next week. I'm also open to what you think I should discuss and who I should interview for the next show. Again, hit me up on Twitter with suggestions. All right, y'all. We'll meet up again next week.